Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 191, The Legal Pirate, Captain Morgan. As I mentioned last episode, piracy was an old tradition that had raged along the coasts of Wales, England, and elsewhere for many years long before the discovery of the New World. It featured both legal and illegal criminal activity. One thing we should address up front before we get into the major topic is that men were not the only pirates in this community. A surprising number of women ventured to sea, and in many capacities, as servants, prostitutes, laundresses, cooks, and, albeit less frequently, as sailors, naval officers, whaling merchants, or pirates. In order to do so, many may have hid their genders, as one of the more notorious pirates did, Mary Reader. Anne Bonny was another famous female pirate who was likely inspired by a 16th century Irish woman named Grace O'Malley, whose fierce visage was claimed to have come about due to her face being scarred after an attack by an eagle. O'Malley became infamous along the coasts of Ireland. Still, female pirates remained an anomaly and perceived liability. Blackbeard, for one, banned women from his ships, and if his crew took one captive, she was strangled and pitched overboard. As we mentioned last time, the legal version of piracy was known as privateering. Usually, pirates were hired, in quotes, or given letters that commissioned them to act as raiders on behalf of the state, sometimes to act as additional naval military vessels in battle, and as many pirate crews had long histories of naval warfare via experience in either their pirate days or even as former naval officers and crew, that made them easily usable mercenaries in effect. Many of the pirates who began their careers in New Providence in the Bahamas were former privateers. When the Treaty of Utrecht was brought the end of British involvement in the War of Spanish Succession between 1701 and 1714, uh, hundreds of former privateers suddenly found themselves out of work. The reality of piracy was that opportunity was seized when it was presented, and there was little consideration done about anything other than what would put food in their mouths and that of their families. Descriptions of pirates are very rarely found, no matter how many illustrations or Hollywood movies seem to color that perception. The closest to a description that we have come up with came from a general history of the robberies and murders of the notorious pirates written in 1724 by a man claiming to be Captain Charles Johnson, who historians have no evidence about the author and what they ever did. This book outlines a number of pirates of the era, and the way it describes them mostly concerned their battle dress of notably flamboyant captains. Bartholomew Roberts, or Black Bart, someone we will talk in great detail about next time, made a gallant figure in the quotes of this book at the time of the engagement, being dressed in rich crimson waistcoat and breeches, a red feather in his hat and a gold chain round his neck, with a diamond cross hanging on it. 
and a sword in his hand and two pair of pistols hanging at the end of a silk sling flung over his shoulder, according to the custom of pirates. Likely, pirates were dressed like their fellow seamen, who, for the most part, would dress relatively simply. This would make sense as there was little in the way of a uniform dress on ships of the Royal Navy. The closest thing was that most seamen wore something called slops, which was a form of heavy trousers which were different from other forms of fashion. They also wore ready-made clothing sold to ship's crews by contractors, so thus sometimes the ships themselves had a uniform, but it wasn't uniform, if you get what I mean by that. Many captains themselves established general standards of appearance for the seamen on their vessels, but there was little to no uniformity between ships. This would not change until the Crimean War in 1857. Even the officers of the Royal Navy had no set uniform. However, many adopted the upper-class clothing with wigs to denote their social status. Coats were often dark blue to reduce fading caused by rain and spray, with gold embroidery on the cuffs and a standing collar to signify the officer's wealth and status. The form of the Royal Navy seen in the height of imperial colonialism was still a century away during the early 18th century. The Again, going back to the Hollywood presentation of the navies of the time, they certainly didn't look as clean or as organized. In the main, pirates and sailors wore hard-wearing linen and wool, which were the most practical for life at sea. Wool was favored because it was good at keeping out wet and cold, and it would make sense as places other than Africa or the Caribbean itself would be traveling the North Atlantic, which of course was a cold one. You couldn't obviously stay warm in those vicious breeze and weather that would come down as you traveled from Britain to the Caribbean. It was only as you arrived in those places that things got a lot hotter and more difficult to deal with. This often means that the image that we have of pirates in movies and TV shows are no more realistic than the our image of other historical figures or situations. We have seen that Hollywood or even the BBC want to translate modern understandings of the past in ways that make little sense for those that lived them. In Wales, piracy was a growing profession for those who used to be members of the British Navy or had worked in some facility as a merchant person. One of the earliest terrors was Pierce Griffith, who was a privateer in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Griffith was a son of Rhys, Sir Rhys Griffiths, MP of Penryn and Sheriff of Carnarvonshire. Pierce was born in 1567 from Rhys's second wife, Catherine, and was the grandson to Sir William Griffith, Chamberlain of North Wales. This shows that Griffiths was not some poor person who was looking to make a little bit of money. He was the son of a wealthy landholder in Wales who had had power in the area that he was in, and that meant that he could reach lofty heights. However, 
he also wasn't the heir apparent to the local land, and that would have some bearing on probably his profession. We don't really know about his early life or career before his admittedly abbreviated life of piracy. From 1600 to 1603, Griffiths was attacking Spanish shipping as it returned from the New World. At the beginning of the reign of James I, he is said to have obliged to sell or mortgage his estate in order to purchase a pardon, or at least to defray the expense of his prosecution, thus showing that he was actually in trouble with the law for what he was doing. He wasn't necessarily a privateer at this point. Historians believe that this is accurate, as there are records which lead them to believe that this debt was encumbering his estate. He would eventually lose his property in the end through legal action in 1616, and he died on the 18th of August, 1628, but yet was buried in the Broad Isle at Westminster Abbey, showing again that even though he was in debt and had financial problems, he was not some penniless pauper. And unfortunately, beyond this information, he's mostly an enigma. The most well-known Welsh privateer and gentleman, however, was Sir Henry Morgan. Born Harry Morgan around 1635 in Wales, either in Llanrhymne or Pencarn, both, of course, in Monmouthshire, Llanrhymne, of course, being a part of Cardiff. So it's guessed it's somewhere between Cardiff and Newport that he grew up. Several sources state that Morgan's father was Robert Morgan, a farmer. Morgan himself was reported to have said of his early life that he had left school early and was much more used to a pike than the book. A fighter, not a philosopher, you might say. It is unknown how Morgan made his way to the Caribbean. There's lots of different suggestions. Some historians suspect he might have traveled to the Caribbean as part of the army of Robert Venerables, sent by Oliver Cromwell as part of the Caribbean expedition against the Spanish in the West Indies in 1654. Just as possible, he may have served as an apprentice to a maker of cutlery for three years in exchange for the cost of his emigration, something that, of course, would be fairly common for people without the ability to fund their own voyage and something that would go on in the Americas quite consistently. This, of course, is known as indentured servitude. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. 
Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Richard Brown, who served as a surgeon under Morgan in 1670, stated that Morgan had traveled either as a private gentleman soon after the 1655 capture of Jamaica by England, or that he may have been abducted in Bristol and transported to Barbados, where he was sold as a servant. These sound a bit fantastical, I'm not going to lie. British conquests in the Caribbean began with the first permanent settlement in St. Kitts, in 1623, followed soon after by the capture of Barbados, Nevis, and Montserrat, as well as Antigua, from 1627 to 1632. Using these bases of operations, British pirates and privateers raided Spanish fleets as they traveled out of the Caribbean with various precious metals to the Old World. Eventually, under Cromwell, the English attacked the Spanish and gained Jamaica as a key island for the development of sugar and colonized the island after the victory in 1655. Thus, it's around then that we know Morgan has arrived in Jamaica. In the 17th century, the Caribbean offered an opportunity for young men to become rich quickly, although significant investment was needed to obtain higher returns from the sugar export economy. Other opportunities for financial gain, of course, were through the trade or plunder of the Spanish Empire. Much of the plundering, of course, was from privateering. William Morgan quickly found his place amongst these ambitious men and women at the height of piracy. It is probable that in the early 1660s, Morgan was active with a group of privateers led by Sir Christopher Mings, attacking Spanish cities and settlements in the Caribbean and Central America where England was at war with Spain. And it's likely that in 1663, Morgan captained one of the ships in Ming's fleet and took part in the attack on Santiago de Cuba and the sack of Campanche in the Yucatan Peninsula. I probably misspelled, pronounced that. I apologize. Sir Thomas Moidford was appointed the governor of Jamaica on February 1664 with instructions to limit the activities of the privateers. He then set out a proclamation against their activities on June 11, 1664, but the economic practicalities led to his reversing of this policy by the end of the month. In other words, it was a pretty paper-thin legal writ. 
The problem for the government was that around 1,500 privateers brought a large amount of revenue to the island. As the planting community of 5,000 was still new and developing, the revenue from the privateers was needed to avoid economic collapse, something that could happen quite frequently in the New World. Many a colony collapsed and went out of existence due to that very fact. In August of 1665, Morgan, along with fellow captains John Morris and Jacob Fackman, returned to Port Royal with a large cargo of valuables. Moidford was impressed enough with the spoils to report back to the government that Central America was the prosperous, in his quote, place for an attack on the Spanish Indies. Morgan remained active in the following years, but with little is recorded for this period. In early 1666, he was married in Port Royal to his cousin, Mary Morgan, the daughter of Edward Morgan, the island's deputy governor. This allowed Morgan to create a reputation as a well-to-do landholder rather than just a legal pirate. At some stage in 1666, during the wars with the Dutch, Morgan helped in leading the construction of Fort Charles in Port Royal and also leading the local militia in Jamaica. In 1668, the governor of Jamaica called once again for privateers to attack the Spanish. Morgan's letter of mark gave him permission to attack Spanish shipping at sea. However, there was no permission for attacks on land. Any plunder obtained from attacks on a ship would be split between the government, the owners of the ships that were rented by the privateers, and hardly any to the privateers themselves. If the privateers, however, stepped outside their official letters and raided a city, any resultant plunder would then be retained by the privateers. As historian Jan Rogzinski observed, Attacks on cities were illegal piracy, but extremely profitable. Morgan, at the beginning of his legitimate business ventures as a plantation owner, now had a much more profitable source to continue to finance his climb up the social ladder. Morgan's most successful assault during this period was the capture of Porto Bello and its three castles. The profit from this and the small venture against Perto Principe Earlier in the year, saw the privateers haul huge sums of money and valuables. Morgan returned to Port Royal with between 70,000 and 100,000 pounds of cash and valuables, including slaves. Some historians claim that this was more than the agricultural output of Jamaica and nearly half of Barbados's sugar exports at the time. Each privateer received 120 pounds to themselves, equivalent to five or six times the average salary of a sailor at the time. Morgan himself received a 5% share, while Governor Modiford received 10% share, which was the price of Morgan's letter of mark. As Morgan had overstepped the limits of his commission, Modiford reported back to London that he had reproved him, in quotes, for his actions. However, in Britain... Morgan was seen as a national hero for his actions. The legend of Captain Morgan was on its way. Of course, this did not mean that these men were honorable or decent to their victims. 
While we cannot know for sure, most suspect that torture, random violence, rape, and general murder went along with the pillaging. From 1668 to 1669, Morgan would continue to sail against the Spanish in Central and South America, raiding cities at each point and pillaging them while trying to find the loose change from various torture victims. Even when Morgan was in trouble, outnumbered and outgunned by the Spanish in Venezuela on Lake Maracaibo, he still managed to escape. The Spanish fleet had boxed him in in the lake and were trying to get him to return all of the booty that he had looted as a way to get his way past the Spanish fleet without violence. Morgan and his crew instead went on the attack, sending a fire ship, which is a ship that is only sort of put together, which was meant to burn the target that it was thrown at and would be lit just as it was getting close to reaching the enemy. Thus, it would be a surprise attack. It achieved that goal by burning the Spanish flagship and damaging the second biggest ship in the Spanish fleet on the lake. They then weaseled their way out of the lake by threatening a Spanish city which guarded the exit. All the while, the Spanish Navy and Army sat helpless to know what Morgan had planned and thus were too busy trying to protect themselves in other ways than to actually deal with the enemy as he was making his escape. Before taking any actions... Morgan tallied the pillage and divided it equally amongst his ships to ensure that, regardless of what happened, at least if one ship was sunk, it wouldn't mean the loss of everything. The total, as it turned out, was 250,000 pesos and a huge quantity of merchandise and a number of local slaves. Morgan would use his illegal gains to invest in 836-acre, or 338-hectare, plantation, the second such investment creating even more income from legitimate means. By 1670, it continued to attack various cities, including a massive attack on Panama that left the city in tatters due to the governor carrying out a scorched-earth tactic on the city itself, leaving only a small income relatively for the various privateers, and because of this, accusations flew that Morgan himself had profited more than his fellow pirates in these battles. The battle at Panama had the misfortune of falling after the peace agreement between England and Spain, and was thus perceived as illegal. Morgan himself would justify that this happened before he knew that there was a peace treaty. That was at least how he kind of got off scot-free on this deal. Morgan was arrested to mollify the Spanish and was sent to London to face charges, but upon his arrival far from justice, he received a hero's welcome. The Welshman was a hero in the eyes of the public, and there was no way the crown would turn him into a martyr simply to satisfy the Spanish government. Morgan was then knighted, sent back to Jamaica only a couple of years later, now as the deputy to the new governor, the third Earl of Carberry, John Vaughan. Carberry and Morgan, however, 
were cut from two very different claws, and they almost instantly clashed. Morgan was a gambler. He was a drunkard. He was, by all measure, immensely popular with the locals in Jamaica, while Carberry was seen more as an outsider. Morgan would continue to be a key figure in Jamaican politics over the next 10 years, and at one point served as the governor. But his issues with Carberry continued to plague him, and eventually he lost control of the government and was reduced to merely a rich landholder. Morgan, by this time, likely as well for most of his life, was a heavy alcoholic, and the addiction had left him in a bad state health-wise. On August 25, 1668, he died, and most of his wealth and possessions were then handed to his wife until her death, where it was then divided out among various relatives and other people. Included in that wealth, as a plantation owner in Jamaica, he also happened to own over a hundred slaves. So let's not look too positively on this man when you measure his tendencies for violence, torture, and slavery. You have to balance that against the, you know, success that he had. He was a very successful military man. He was very tactically astute. And certainly it served him well to acquire all his wealth. And of course, for most people, the only way they know of Captain Morgan is on a bottle of rum. But this is where that legend originated from. And this was one of the main pirates of the Caribbean. And a Welsh one at that. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns... You can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can always uh, join in conversations with us on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Or if you'd like to help fund the research for this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Anything is appreciated. And I would once again sincerely like to thank those that have contributed over the years that I've had this Patreon going. It has been much appreciated, and you certainly continue to allow me to do this podcast and continue to acquire the information I need in order to at least do it justice. So next week, we'll be back talking pirates one more time as we talk about Black Bart, one of the more notorious Welsh pirates. Until then, take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. 
We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.